Hello and welcome to the very first episode of The Trajectory Africa. The Trajectory Africa is a pop-up podcast exploring the contours of venture capital and startup formation on the continent. The goal is to identify a destination for African tech and the signposts that signal direction of travel. It's inspired by the concept of a mixtape in which each episode or track will feature a conversation with a guest artist with whom I'll explore a specific topic. I'm your host, Tayo Akinyemi, and today's guest is Tony Chen, co-founder of Kinyangu Ventures, which aims to catalyze early and growth stage businesses with a focus on East Africa. Tony has 10 years of corporate experience. In addition to being a five-time founder, an angel investor, and most importantly, a husband and a father of two. We'll be chatting today about Tony's story, how he became an Africa-focused investor, why he launched a full-on research project to explore early-stage investing in Africa, and what has changed for him in Kinyangu since the research was released. Things have shifted a bit since January, Tony, right? Uh, quite a bit. It's been some fun changes in this year. Yep. Awesome. I'm looking forward to getting into it. And welcome to the Trajectory Africa. It's fantastic to have you here for the inaugural episode. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. So, Tony, you and I met through a mutual friend, uh, Josiah Mugambi. Uh, I think Josiah and I were having coffee in Nairobi a couple of years ago. And then during that chat, he asked me if I knew you because we were both Chicago-based. Of course, I didn't. And of course, it takes someone in Nairobi to introduce you to someone who's, who's practically your neighbor. Anyway, it was through that intro that we ended up working on the research together. Yeah, and Josiah is just one of those guys that just seems to know everybody and builds trust everywhere he goes. And so I'm sort of not surprised that it sort of happened in Nairobi to have this Chicago connection. I'm not either. I've, I've really appreciated Josiah and the work that he's done over the years. And I'm happy that we were able to benefit uh, from his ability to connect. Um, and so we will jump into your story and the research in a second. But I thought I'd get us started with a fun fact. Um, are you ready? <laughs> Go for it. Okay, great. Here we go. So the title of this episode, or at least a proposed title because this hasn't been edited yet, is actually inspired by a quote from you. Um, I don't know if you remember, but during the Chasing Outliers launch webinar, Agosa Moigui of Echo VC was describing how challenging it was to run a fund. And at the end, you basically said, so don't start a fund then. And <laughs> during that conversation, Ogoso was keeping it very real in terms of, you know, talking about the challenges of being a fund manager. Yeah, that, I do remember that moment. I actually don't remember saying that, but I think the realities of running like a fund for early stage tech ventures on the continent is just, it's just a really hard reality. And so, yeah, he definitely broke it down that day to what it's really like day to day. Very, very much so. It was a really great conversation then. So when I was thinking about what this episode focuses on, which is basically your trajectory before and after the research, I thought I'd call it something like, so don't start a fund, uh, why Kinyangu Ventures changed its approach to chasing outliers. What do you think? I like that. that and it kind, of, it's kind of happens to be true in a way. So yeah, let's, uh, let's go with it. Excellent. So let's jump in. Tony, for those who may not know a lot about who you are, what should, what should we know um, about you, your journey, and why you decided to launch a fund in Africa? Yeah, so basically for me, I've spent almost 25 years now essentially as a, as a serial entrepreneur, um, first as an intrapreneur in corporate settings, and then in the last 12 years as, a, as an entrepreneur starting five businesses with multiple failures and multiple exits. And then basically what happened was in 2013, you know, my wife and I were just having a lunch with her sister and her sister was telling us about a friend 
who had spent a year in Kenya. And so for me, as a man of faith, it was kind of a God moment. I remember listening to the story and just said, wow, this, this is kind of where we need to be. And so my wife and I got to talking that night and we almost said it at the same time. We need to spend a season in Kenya. So that's kind of what got us to the continent. Um, honestly, I was the trailing spouse. My wife is a OBGYN. So she, it's actually, you know, she worked at the missions hospital. I was running a software business at the time. And, you know, as these things go, as soon as we decided to move to Kenya, my software business took off. I was keeping up with growth. I actually ran the business remotely from Kenya for a year. And then we finally hired what I would call as a real CEO to take over for me. And that's when I, you know, as a guy that just loves entrepreneurs, I started having coffees with entrepreneurs in Kenya. And uh, 300 coffees later or so, um, I found some entrepreneurs I really believed in and ended up starting to uh, invest in them. That's an amazing story that I'd really like to dig in a bit more. So you mentioned that you were having this, um, this dinner and you had, a, you had a moment. Can you maybe share a little bit about what about the conversation or what hit you then that made you and your wife feel like, okay, we need to make this move? Yeah, you know, it's, it was sort of like the seeds of change had already been planted. We were both in a place where we were maybe looking for a change. We knew that kind of her, her current uh, work, you know, there was, the season was like coming to a close soon. And we've always had a heart for you know, doing things at, in service to others. And so that, when we heard that story, it was just one of those moments where everything clicked. So it's, I could totally envision our life there and actually it would almost be inevitable for us not to go because it, that's, that's just how much it would fit us. So, you know, this great, challenging, rewarding role at this hospital for my wife, um, this amazing, I mean, a, a lot of why it worked was in that little town. There was a, an, an inter, international school where my kids would go to. And so all of that just sort of lined up in a moment and we just felt like, we, at least we need to explore it, but you know, every time we had a question, I, I feel like we would get the answer the next day, and it was just the, the path was like cleared for us in a weird way. So we just we were compelled to go. It's really interesting the way you describe it. Um, it almost sounds like, and I hate to be dramatic here, but it almost sounds like you, there was a vision, and uh, the path toward executing that vision was kind of unfolded for you. I mean, obviously, you have to get on the road, right? It doesn't just <laughs> it doesn't just happen. Um, but it seemed like there was a pathway or a road that you were meant to travel, and it unfolded. Right. <laughs> um, what about the story? Uh, can you talk a little bit about what the actual story was that you heard during dinner? Yeah, it was the story was just. You know, this friend had spent a year in this little town in Kenya, and this story was actually around the kids and their experience in this little town and, and, and at this school. And I think that, that, was, that has always been maybe the thing that is hard to grapple with is like, let's, my wife and I, we can, we're, we can probably be pretty adventurous and go these, you know, these crazy places, but what's sort of like the responsible thing to do with with young kids at the time and their schooling and education. And so when we heard a little bit about that it would be an amazing experience for them, it sort of just, that was like the last barrier to fall and we just said, let's go. So yeah, that's kind of how it all started. 
Right. So as parents, uh, you obviously want to make sure that your kids are going to be on the same amazing adventure as you are. So when you heard that, hey, someone else has done this and their kids also had a fantastic experience, let's go. So you mentioned that um, you were the trailing spouse in the sense that you were following your wife's journey to serve in Kenya. So what was your life like as a trailing spouse and burgeoning entrepreneur? Because you mentioned um, that your business was taking off at the time. So, so what was it like for you navigating that path? Um, it was really weird and really fun. I think basically like we, we got to this little town and my wife was working pretty hard. I mean, as you can imagine, as an OBGYN, there was just endless need. But our life there in that little town was really amazing. Like it, it felt like like a little town. I don't know. It felt like I got transported somehow into like the 1950s or something. Life was simpler. We were busy, but life was slower. Um, I had this weird juxtaposition of getting off calls with you know potential Fortune 500 clients and then going to hang out with my you know, farmer friend down the street. So it was just like in the same day, we, that kind of stuff would happen. And I mean, I remember this one day that I was actually pitching like one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world and we lost power and we'd lost water. So I was actually on my phone's hotspot <laughs> doing this demo and pitch in the dark with no water. And, you know, I was just thinking like, if they only knew what was on the other side of the screen, they probably wouldn't sign up for it with us, but they did. But that's just kind of like the world we live in. So like, you know, in this post-COVID era of like working from home, that's, you know, that's something I'm very familiar with. I've been doing it for 12 years. But yeah, so it was just, it was just a great life. Um, my, my son would come home speaking in a Scottish accent because it just so happened that his best friend from school was from Scotland. Uh, you know, just things like that. So just a very rich experience for all of us. Right. Yeah. This imagery of sitting in the dark with no water, uh, securing major deals. I have a feeling that there are a lot of entrepreneurs around the world who can identify with that in one way or another. I mean, it's this whole idea of jerry-rigging it, making it work, you know, putting forth the front that everything is fine, even though <laughs> you're on the precipice of disaster while in, in, in process. But just so people understand, can you share a little bit about the type of business you were running at the time? Yeah, so I started a company called FDA Zilla, which is now known as Redica Systems. And basically we would, we do data analytics and intelligence for big pharmaceutical and medical device and any other company that's regulated by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration here in the U.S. So if, you know, if an American eats or consumes anything, it's being regulated by this agency and our data helped those companies prepare for inspections and monitoring their competitors and their supply chain. So, you know, I was working with really basically quality people, quality assurance people trying to make sure that nothing bad would happen in their manufacturing process. You know, it's interesting. It sounds like, I mean, knowing nothing about this type of business, right? It sounds like a really robust foundational business, but not necessarily an obvious one. So how did you, how did you get into that? And, and if you don't mind also generally speaking, 
How did you get into entrepreneurship? Because from what I understand, you started out as um, a corporate executive. So you had maybe about 10 years in corporate before you went on your five-time entrepreneurship journey. Right. I, I would consider myself more of a corporate underling than an executive, but fair enough, I'll take it. Um, I mean, I think I've always had this energy around starting new things, and I, I didn't even realize it early on. I mean, early in my childhood, it, was, it probably manifested itself in me being like a musician, and instead of wanting to practice other people's songs, I wanted to write my own. But then in college, I, start, I would start you know, different student organizations, and then even in my corporate life of 10 years or so, I was always the first person to hold those roles, if that makes sense. So it's sort of like I had a blank slate, even in these corporate settings. And so that's just always been a part of what I do. And then finally, it was just sort of, I, I want to own what I build. And that's really, that was really the key. And I also, I mean, selfishly speaking, I also really value flexibility of time, um, especially with kids and just wanting to be a part of the family, you know, trajectory over time. So that really, that was really my entree into entrepreneurship. And since then, it's just been one after another, but it's, it really has just been this energy around wanting to own what I build and wanting to carve my own path. That's really just been the, the two key motivations behind it. Right. Owning what you build and carving your own path. So you carved your own path with your family to Kenya and you mentioned that you were kicking it with your farmer friend and also closing deals with Fortune 500 companies. So as a founder, how are you meeting people? What was your journey to meeting other people, other founders, and basically where did that take you? You know, it's just, I, I just sort of felt like it was, I was really curious about people and I wanted to know about their lives and their journey. And especially entrepreneurs, because it's sort of like, these are my people. So it just so happened that one of my very first Kenyan friends, who's now one of my best Kenyan friends, he happened to be a pretty connected guy. So I started going into Nairobi. We started having coffee more regularly. And he started introducing me to some of his friends. And then it basically, it was just like, I can, I can essentially, you know, the 300 coffees I've had since, all, I think about 250 of them kind of roll up to this one guy who's sort of the grandfather of the entire network tree <laughs> that of all those coffees that started with him and organically just kept on meeting people, friends and then friends of friends and then friends of friends of friends. And that's kind of how it got started. It's interesting what happens when you meet that guy or gal. Um, everything seems to unfold from meeting that super connector. And so you start with one conversation and to your point, I mean, 300. <laughs> three, it's a lot of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's a lot of, that's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of coffee, certainly. And so you were traveling into Nairobi from where? From the little town that we lived in called Kajabi. It was about an hour, an hour out. Interesting. Interesting. Right. So flash forward, let's say five to eight years later, you are, again, a five-time founder and an angel investor, and hopefully we'll, we'll get to talk a little bit about that. And then with Kinyangu Ventures, an aspiring first-time fund manager. So you made what I think 
people might consider a pretty unusual decision to do research as a part of your fun lunch strategy. And um, let's say after about a year of work and more than 100 interviews, that research became Chasing Outliers, a report about why Silicon Valley-style investing doesn't necessarily match well to African market realities, which we co-published in January. Can you tell us why you decided to go that route, given that it's not necessarily an obvious choice for a first-time fund manager? Yeah, I mean, I guess to me, it felt like the obvious choice. I mean, I I felt like, you know, as a five-time entrepreneur, I... I'm used to starting things up and figuring things out along the way. And as I got into this idea of starting a fund and being a first-time fund manager, honestly, I realized that I didn't know what I was doing. Like this is a, this is kind of a different beast in a way of just starting a venture because it's, because you really start with other people's money, not your own in a way. Um, so it just, it, so I just really wanted to sit at the feet of, of those that have gone before me. And one of the linchpin conversations I had to, to really kick that off was I had a friend of mine who was a tech entrepreneur like me who then actually transitioned to tech VC. And we were talking about pivots and how, you know, we're as tech entrepreneurs, we're used to sort of five week sprints of let's, let's code like crazy, get some feedback and iterate every five weeks. And he basically was saying for funds, it's not five weeks, it's five years. So if, you know, the worst thing you could do is deploy all this capital now and then five years from now, you'll be very broke and very wise. And that would be the end of it. So this research really was to try to squeeze, you know, 15 years of learning and pivots into about 15, well, it turned out to be about 15 months of work. And so that's, that was the impetus for the research. It was, it was primarily for me to just learn as much as I could quickly it was kind of my, I, I created my own boot camp. But secondly, it was also real, realizing that there are a lot of aspiring fund managers out there kind of grappling with the same questions. So this report would then, hopefully it would be a case where, you know, the rising tide lifts all the boats. Right. So you were essentially trying to hack the learning curve and then outsource, uh, not outsource, open source the learning to help other aspiring fund managers. Um, It seems like a pretty good mission to me. So Chasing Outliers, as you mentioned, started out pretty modestly. We were thinking we'd talk to, you know, 30 or 40 entrepreneurs and investors at best. And we ended up talking to more than 100 founders, uh, investors, and LPs. Can you tell us a little bit about the research process, but maybe more importantly, what you were learning along the way, especially uh, given that this was geared toward first-time fund managers? Yeah, I mean, I think that it was, uh, there's, a, there's learnings on multiple levels. I think it was really interesting just to hear people's individual stories with fundraising and how their individual stories would, you know, the different flavors of each. But then there's, it was also probably more interesting to hear how a lot of these stories started to group themselves into themes. And one of the themes definitely was and we've talked about this, just how VC is not a great, Silicon Valley VC is not a great, you know, match for most African markets. And I would argue most markets in general in the world outside of like, let's say maybe 10 cities. But oddly enough, it was so widely and somewhat blindly applied to these markets. So I, I like to use the analogy of a, 
that VC is like a race car, right? It's like, it's a, it's a very specific vehicle for a specific circumstance. It works great when you have smooth road, good weather, no traffic and a pit crew. But if there's not even a road or if there's a ton of traffic, why aren't we talking more about, you know, the off-roaders geared for versatility and bad weather or for motorcycles that are engineered for versatility or agility. So it was a really odd uh, finding. And I think most people we talked to sort of had this sense intuitively, but as we got to gather this research, it became clear that the underlying assumptions that make VC work aren't true in most markets. Yeah, it's really interesting. I remember kind of being, or uh, during the research and writing process, honing in on this idea that that type of VC doesn't work for most markets in most places. So to some extent, it's not necessarily an Africa story. It's, it's a very specific type of capital that works under very specific types of conditions. And so... It was really interesting to your point, not only to hear the individual stories. I mean, I think we could probably write 17 reports <laughs> looking at various <laughs> looking at various aspects of what uh, people share because the insight was was so rich. But still, just this idea that, you know, you cannot generalize, you cannot generally apply a methodology that was, you know, built for for very specific conditions. But as I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, right, you're a serial entrepreneur, you're used to being really busy. What else were you working on uh, with Kinyangu and your other activities? And what, what impact, sorry, was the research having on that? Yeah, so the, the research was a lot of fun and it was, it was like a one plus year process. And in the meantime, you know, this is also during COVID in 2020, I ended up also making about eight investments, and also having lots of conversation with potential LPs. I was sort of building the pipeline for when I was ready to launch the fund, I'd be able to talk to a bunch of LPs who were ready, who were ready kind of warm leads. So it was both, you know, being in the ecosystem, the entrepreneur ecosystem, talking to a lot of founders, doing coaching calls, and just staying involved and also doing deals, while also building the LP pipeline as well. So that actually kept me pretty busy, you know, that on top of the research. Yeah, that, that, that just sounds like a really tall stack of work. Uh, so let's, let's dig into that a little bit. So what's kind of interesting about your story is that you were formerly a U.S.-based serial entrepreneur who moved to Kenya, who's now raising a fund focused on East Africa, but with roots in the U.S. talking to USLPs. So given that arguable complexity. What was the process like in selling this story to USLPs? Yeah, I mean, I think that the one thing that I've learned in that process of just talking to a lot of LPs is that, I mean, a lot of it, at the end of the day, people don't invest in things, people invest in people. And so as they got to know me and my story, then over time, they became, they felt more and more comfortable to say, I think I want to invest with this guy because um, of his experience and his story and his track record or whatnot. But, but also, on the other hand, there's just, there's just so many sort of preconceived notions around, around Africa in general here in the U.S. And so 
you know, I found very quickly, it's like, unless the person had already been interested in Africa before I even talked to them, it's probably not even worth having the conversation um, because the, the learning curve for them to understand Africa, quote unquote, understand Africa, is just such a tall order. I mean, I feel like for me as a guy that lived there for three years, I'm just barely scratching the surface in a way of one country that is one of the most diverse countries, right? Uh, with even within the country. So it's like, yeah, so I was talking to LPs who already had an interest in Africa. Some of them have actually already in, invested in Africa. And many of them, I mean, I, there was one LP in particular who said, you know, I've been trying to invest in Africa for 15 years and I just keep on losing my money and I don't, I just don't have, there's no good investment vehicles to do so. And maybe you're it. So it was a, it's kind of interesting. So the other part of that experience that I found a little bit difficult was LPs had certain expectations and that was more formed by, you know, the Silicon Valley VC mindset. But when you put that with where the entrepreneurs are on the ground, it almost felt like I had to contort myself and contort the fund I was building in order to build a bridge between where the LPs are and where the entrepreneurs are. Really interesting. So much to unpack here. So your point about understanding and arguably exposure, I think is a really critical one. I remember doing an interview with an entrepreneur for the research, and he basically said, unless a potential investor has had previous Africa experience, it's a waste of time for me. I mean, he was liberal in terms of what he accepted. Right. Like a safari trip, right? <laughs> exactly. The safari example. But he basically said, if you're not there in terms of understanding and exposure, there's, there's really nowhere to go. I think the other really interesting piece is this idea of preconceived notions. And so what are some of the preconceived notions or ideas that you had to work through in these conversations? Yeah, I mean, it's... I feel like this is uh, so it's it's honestly a, not a lot of information or knowledge or wisdom around Africa. So just, you know, trying to help people understand that Africa is the most diverse continent on the planet. Right. And, and this has been this is country wise, linguistically, genetically and otherwise. It's I mean, it's just so diverse and so complex in that sense. Like I said before, even in this, even within the same country, there are, there's diversity and variety. Um, I think out of the 20 most diverse countries in the world, something like 12 of them are African countries, right? So just kind of con coming to understand. So when people say the phrase invest in Africa, it would be like us saying investing in the Western hemisphere. Like it's like, it's like you're grouping Panama in, to the same group as the US in that sense, right? So it's like, so that is definitely one piece. And so just giving them a sense of appreciation for how complex and diverse it is, that's one thing. I mean, I think that the other thing is honestly just the stereotypes that people have from movies or whatever, right? Or, or just kind of the overriding narrative from the last 20 years of, you know, the poverty, the corruption, the child soldiers, um, all that, they don't see 
their room full of coders doing data science in Nairobi, right? They don't, so those are some of the things like, so, so starting to change the narrative of, you know, let me tell you the story of my friend Ken or whoever, so that they start having a different kind of narrative in their minds of what, what it could be. So I, you know, I've really started to come around to say, and I quote Jack Ma on this, and I say that he said, Africa is like the China of 20 years ago. I think they're, they're, in some ways, Africa's moment has arrived. And I, I saw it even in the ecosystem, even in the short time that I was in Nairobi, the ecosystem has developed so quickly in just the three years I was there. I often say that like, you know, an entrepreneur starting a venture today versus starting the same venture three years ago, the chances of that person succeeding is now dramatically different because the ecosystem is just so nutrient rich, more nutrient rich now than it was before with more players. So just telling those kinds of stories was helping to hopefully break some myths that people have, these investors had in their minds. That's a really useful way of thinking about confronting uh, preconceived notions. So it's this idea of honing in on complexity and diversity, presumably in a way that's accessible so people don't just run away from the challenge, but then also grounding it in specific stories and experiences based on founders that you've met or invested in. I mean, it sounds like a really, because people like stories, they like to connect with specific people. I mean, that's why they would invest in you. So taking that approach makes um, a lot of sense. But in terms of, you know, the ongoing conversation, so you, you use the word contortion, which kind of is very evocative. <laughs> so what would you say you were you were trying to bridge? So you mentioned the preconceived notions, but you also mentioned the right vehicle. So what is it that you had, or, or basically what did you have to bridge from what you were working on to the expectations that needed to be met? One of the main things was around time horizon. So, you know, with the typical VC fund, you're, you're trying to get into companies as quickly as possible and then in some ways to get out as quickly as possible. And you have these great returns because with, with, with time at the denominator, as you lessen the time, you know, your returns go up. And so I started talking to people about, let's think about time horizon in a different way, right? It's like there's, most people overestimate what can be done in five years and underestimate what can be done in 15. And in fact, there's a really good Shell Foundation research paper that talks about in emerging markets where a lot of the value creation is in the second decade, which is ironic because that's when the VCs have already left, right? So it's, so it's like, let's talk about things do take longer um, in a lot of these contexts because there are so many exogenous shocks, you know, an election that takes out six months of progress or some sort of a climate thing that happens or anything else. I mean, there's just so many, uh, a new regulation that comes out of nowhere, right? So it's just things do take longer. And so just getting them to understand that that time horizon piece really is a key form factor to, to think about our investment vehicles. So talking about permanent capital vehicles or some other alternative vehicles, I started having those kinds of conversations and 
But I do remember like this one particular family office um, in Chicago, actually one of my favorite family offices. And I, I, I told them about the whole time horizon thing. And they also haven't been in, they've been investing in Africa for a while. So I got through the whole, all the research we have found, all, everything I just told you. And at the end of the conversation, they just said, that's great, Tony, but can you still just make it a 10-year fund? Um, so I was sort of scratching my head from that, just like, wow, that's, uh, if I can't convince them who know and, and want to invest with me, how am I going to convince anyone else, really? You know, it's, it's I was going to say it's ironic, but it's really not. It's, it's really instructive how much that story matches with what we heard in the research. So it's this idea, and I'm not suggesting that it, this applies to every GP, but we did hear pretty frequently that um, a certain segment of GPs really did believe that in certain cases, more time was needed. But, there, but in trying to pitch that story to LPs caused a lot of friction. And the math that some of them ended up doing was, do I want to raise this fund or do I want to be right? <laughs> so, you know, and, and the, the, the response, I think, in a lot of cases is what you described that, you know, that I, I get it wonderful, but here's what we need to have. Here's what we need to have happen. But you also bring up um, a really interesting point about evolution, right? These ecosystems are changing, more investors are, are, are coming through. And so what we're what we'll be doing in 15 years, to your point, versus five years, uh, could be could be very could be very different. So let's let's talk about evolution because you've done some evolving as well. So I guess we're four to five months post report launch, and so my, I'm curious about whether or not your assumptions or ways of thinking changed from before the research started, and if there's anything you know now that you didn't know before. Yeah, we released that report in January, and you know, I, I felt like it was very well received in the market, and it was good. And, and we, so what we, you know, we did the sort of tour of uh, talking to different people about it. But for me, one of the personal take takeaways for me that was somewhat unexpected was that these smaller checks in the early stage African tech companies, you know, and by small I mean maybe like five hundred thousand dollars or less. I basically concluded that those checks are super strategic, really, really important, and also virtually impossible to do as a standalone business. And definitely not what I wanted to hear, because that's kind of what I wanted to do, that exact thing. So that was kind of shocking uh, as, a, as a conclusion for the research, which is don't do the thing you were, you were hoping to do. Um, <laughs> But on the other hand, I also saw amazing opportunities and I just felt like, how do I think about this out of the box and how do maybe, so the two conclusions I came up with was one, I want to do tech as part of something bigger and I want to do tech, but maybe utilizing an alternative structure. So you know, as, as these things go, like that, that's actually, it was, it was perfect timing. So that was when a friend of mine named Scott Friesen, who started Verdant Frontiers, 
we started having a conversation and, and he basically said, Tony, come help me build the company that's doing this great work across Africa and bring your tech with you and let's invest in tech together. So the two conclusions I came up with basically happened. It was, you know, we're a hold co, it's essentially a permanent capital vehicle, but we also operate in these different verticals out other than tech. And tech becomes part of, you know, one of three verticals that we're involved in that are each, you know, sort of mutually adjacent and self-reinforcing. So yeah, that's kind of what happened. So, and as part of that, me coming over to join Verdant as a partner, Verdant also acquired Kinugu Ventures and my portfolio. And so it's sort of like, it's all under one umbrella now. So it's, uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And, you know, I was joking with my wife the other day, just saying, this is the first time I've joined a company as opposed to started a company in, in 15 years. So it's like, this is what it feels like to be the new guy. But, and, and it only works because um, there's so much alignment between me and the rest of the team. I just, I mean, I love the team and the culture and, and Scott's a great partner and we're on a great mission. So it, it all sort of lines up for me in that way. So I'm really happy about that, of course. So I'm, I've, I have sort of iterated and pivoted in my way too, post-research. That's such an interesting, uh, well, I, I shouldn't call it a conclusion because it's just the start of a new journey. But this idea that founders are expected to pivot on the dime and, and respond to what the market is telling you. And you here as a, as a first time fund manager did the exact same thing. You had planned to do X. The market said, nope. <laughs> so, and so you went on to do Z, so tech plus, but also alternative, alternative structures. So how did, that, how did that happen? How did it evolve? Um, I mean, I think overall, it's just, this is part of the kind of the relationship building that I think every entrepreneur has to be doing. So it's, I mean, it's the, the best time to, to talk to potential partners and potential investors and anyone really is before you need anything, right? So it's just building these relationships early. I mean, I remember meeting Scott two years ago at a conference and I actually remember thinking, leaving that conversation, I'm probably going to end up working with this guy at some point. Um, you know, I thought maybe 15 years from now, but, you know, two years later, here we are. So just being out there and building relationships, I think that's, that's the key to me because that trust that's built uh, over time is just hard to replicate and hard, hard to replace. So that's kind of how it happened. And I'm, so, you know, Scott is in this place and Verdon is in this place where we're there. We are really going in, into a new season. And so it made sense. And they've always actually wanted to do tech. They just never had the leader to lead the charge. And so that, so kind of as, you know, I guess as, as, as you, I'm not that unique per se, but there's not that many people in the world that are thinking about African early stage tech, you know, that the, the ecosystem is small in that sense. And what Verdant has done over the last eight years across Africa is really, in my mind, really unique as well. So it's just this uh, really cool pairing of interests and motivations and, and mission. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, this idea of, of tech, tech but more 
it kind of speaks to the idea that there are opportunities. So not that tech isn't a robust opportunity, absolutely is, but there, that there are opportunities beyond tech to exploit. But I, there are a couple of things that you mentioned in, in describing your your journey to emerging with Verdant that I'd like to I'd like to touch on. So you mentioned that one of your conclusions was that it was kind of impossible to do small checks as a standalone business. My question is why? I mean, the answer may seem obvious, but I think it's an, it's still a question worth asking. Yeah, there's really two problems, and the latter problem is bigger. The former problem is just a fundraising problem which is you got to raise enough funds to have enough fees to live off of. And so for me as a first time fund manager, you know, I'm not getting any institutional money. And I basically did the calculation of, you know, I'm going to be collecting a lot of hundred thousand dollar checks and to get to, let's say 20 million, that's 200 checks, which probably translates to about 2000 meetings. So, that would probably take me to do 2000 meetings probably takes me a few years and that just gets me to the starting line. But let's say just for argument's sake, I'm a really amazing fundraiser <laughs> and I could get to the starting line. I think the bigger problem is the deployment problem, which is if you're going to write these small checks, you've got a bare bones team. I mean, think about hundred K checks out of a, 16, you know, $20 million fund of which maybe $16 million gets deployed. I mean, that's like a, that's like a hundred checks at least, right? So it's, so how do you manage a portfolio of a hundred companies and how do you do that in a way that you got to get, again, got to get in them quickly and then you got to start making the turn to get out of them quickly. So, you know, maybe I'm an amazing, maybe I have an amazing intuition to pick the right ones, but it's just really hard to deploy that kind of capital when it's expensive to do origination and due diligence and the legal and the post-investment monitoring. You know, for a $20 million fund, I mean, you're talking about maybe two partners and one or two associates or portfolio managers, and the four of you have to run the whole thing. Um, and it's just, so the deployment problem just became pretty obvious. and and you know, I did this other bit of like random research on the side to, sh- to look at the different, there's about 30 groups in Kenya that are writing $50,000 checks and none of them are doing it as a standalone business. They're all either, they have a side business, which, you know, now they're doing advisory or consulting or M&A work or selling intelligence and, or they're relying on donor capital to subsidize their salaries so they can actually make a living. So that also spoke to me. I just thought, wow, if none of these folks can do it as a standalone. And I also, in the, in the research process, also ran into four groups who tried to raise $20, million, 20 to $30 million funds for early stage tech, and all of them failed, and all of them are way more impressive than me. So I was thinking, wow, what am I thinking <laughs> to try to do this? <laughs> right. Um, well, I happen to think objectively that your track record is impressive, but I definitely hear what you're saying. If if credible folks are, you know, stepping up to the plate and striking out, it makes you wonder, well, maybe there's something wrong, fundamentally wrong with this game. And this idea of subsidy actually came up in the research. There were a couple of funds kind of experimenting. I guess you could call it from a portfolio perspective of 
integrating, let's say, lower returning but more stable assets alongside their higher risk, higher return assets. And I guess what I'm curious about is in the case of Verdant, is that something that has occurred to you or is that more of it's just kind of what happened given the type of assets each organization was holding? I mean, I think in Verdant's case, it kind of just how it unfolded. Verdant started, I mean, the nice thing is that Verdant started in 2013. So there's eight years of on the ground experience already. And, you know, a little bit of the origin story of Verdant is that we started in Ethiopia. We started a bunch of companies in Ethiopia. We're getting things done. Some of the companies worked, some of them didn't. But essentially, the US government said, You guys seem like you know how to get things done around here. We have this huge embassy housing problem. Long story short, we end up building them an $80 million embassy housing project in Addis. Um, and, and then they said, nice job in Addis, help us in Nairobi. So we broke ground in Nairobi on a $50 million embassy housing project. And so out of that, we've spun out a real estate development company called Verdant Ventures that's chasing down you know, about a half a billion dollars worth of project pipeline you know, now a bunch of other governments are calling, big international companies are calling, because there's just this huge need for high security international grade housing. So that's, it's kind of a niche in real estate. And going back to your asset classes question, you know, real, this kind of real estate in this niche is just a really great producing asset, um, pretty secure. I mean, you could arguably, the US government is the safest tenant on the planet. And so that creates kind of this great, financial foundation for the other things that we do. So we also do large-scale agriculture and we love agriculture because, you know, 60% of the unused arable land on the planet is in Africa and there's this unmet rising demand coming out of Europe and Asia for produce that's coming out of Africa. So anyway, so it's like you have these different asset classes, real estate and you've got agriculture which is a great actually a great hedge against inflation and then tech. So it's kind of like this really interesting mix of different asset classes that as a whole become that much stronger together as a portfolio. Right, I really do think it's a really interesting model because they're the richest of opportunity, not just in tech, but beyond tech. So, so as we wrap up here, I, I just want to talk a little bit about something that you'd mentioned before. So this idea, so you'd mentioned that the Shell Foundation has done research that suggests that the real value is created in the second decade. You also mentioned in terms of the evolution of ecosystems, the, the degree to which nutri nutrient richness is increasing. And so something I've been toying with in my head, although not very kind of studiously, is the idea of intergenerational investing. So does it make sense to expect that the first model in sector X, let's say e-commerce, will be a winner, as opposed to maybe the, the second or third version of that company in the second or third generation of that sector? Does that sound weird? Is that something that you've thought about at all? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a good paradigm to think about ecosystems in terms of generations and some ecosystems kind of cycle through new generations more quickly than others. And as our colleague Osa Rumina has often pointed out, you know, ecosystems 
sort of develop very slowly and then all at once. And so he talks about the, if you look at the unicorns in China, it's like none forever and then one and then five and then 20. And then, so you, you definitely do have some ecosystems that will begin to develop in a way that you're going to start seeing some unicorns and then those exited founders of those unicorns start turning around and becoming angel investors themselves and start investing in the next generation. And they're probably some of the smartest capital out there because they've been through the grind all the way up. And then that the nutrients in the ecosystem start really pouring in at that point. And then you start to see some really amazing growth. So going back to your, you know, baseball analogy, I guess it's if, if all these folks are striking out, because maybe the game is rigged. Well, you could also say, well, maybe the pitcher is getting tired. And so at some point, someone's going to go up to bat and they're going to actually get on base and, or hit a home run because he's, he's watched the other batters strike out and he's understanding the pitcher and the pitcher's getting tired. So I don't know. Maybe that's the case as well. I think that's a really astute point. Time is passing. Ecosystems are evolving companies, investors are all learning. So it's going to be really hard to predict when that catalytic moment happens that will launch the ecosystem or ecosystems into that higher echelon of productivity, for lack of a better way of putting it. But this has been an amazing conversation. And so we're going to wrap up now with what I'm hoping will become <laughs> the Trajectory Africa's signature closing questions. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. So technically what we're trying to do here is piece together the trajectory of African tech. So based on your experience, where do you think we're going with an African VC in tech? And what would you describe as the key indicators of this trajectory? Yeah, I think, I think we're in for a really, really exciting 10 years here. I do think ecosystems are developing and actually the, like the one indicator that I would be looking at as I've, I've sort of alluded to it already is exited founders who turn around and invest in the next generation of entrepreneurs. I think, again, I think that's the smartest capital out there and a lot of people are going to want to co-invest with those folks and a lot of those folks are going to be investing in, let's say, t tech for the first time. And so that is just that I think that's going to be such a great indicator for ecosystem development, more exits, more entrepreneurs, operators turned angel investors. And we're going to see I, I fully expect to see I think the next 10 African unicorns already exist. Um, they're just in their early stages of incubation and we're going to start hearing about them over the next few years. I do hope that we can still take into account the fact that that doesn't mean that everyone should be chasing unicorns back to the race car analogy or whatnot, but, but there's a lot of opportunities right now and it's only getting better as we go. Right. So you heard it here first, African unicorns are currently loading, but no, to your point about founders, serial founders kind of serving as catalyst, I think is a really, really important one. Endeavor did some research a couple of years ago looking at this, comparing a couple of ecosystems. And in looking at, I guess, what makes a productive ecosystem so that the ecosystem is producing large numbers of high growth businesses, those outcomes were driven by ecosystems who were centered on 
founders, as leaders within the ecosystem. So I think what you're saying is it makes complete sense. And even in our own research, you know, there was certainly interest in investors, perhaps obviously, in founders who'd done this a couple of times and learned before. I think even in, in your own experience, you'd looked at a founder who you thought was a great founder, but you kind of waited until that founder got into the quote unquote right business to invest. Yeah, that's right. Oftentimes uh, I'll, I'll meet someone and it'll be in my mind, I'm thinking right founder, wrong venture. So, but staying up with them and journeying alongside with them. And then sometimes they do the pivot or they, they get into the right venture and then all of a sudden it's uh, off to the races. Right, right. So I think we've arrived at the last question. So the other thing that we're trying to do here at Trajectory Africa is to crowdsource the soundtrack for African Tech and VC. So what I'd like you to do is to share your track suggestion for the people and explain why you picked it. Yeah, so I, this, this might be a little bit of a, I don't know, unexpected choice, but I chose My Shot, which is a song on the soundtrack of Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda. So it's, and it's basically, you know, Alexander Hamilton is this sort of under-recognized, under-appreciated founder of America. And that's the song, My Shot, it's like, I'm not going to give up my shot. This is my shot. I got to take it. And so I just, I love the inner dialogue that happens in the, in the track. Just, you know, there's so much like confidence and inspiration and let's go get it. And there's also some self-doubt and what am I doing? And, you know, <laughs> am I talking too loud? And so there's that. And then there's just the fact that like he was one of the founders of America. And I mean, he basically, not to stretch the analogy too far, but he was also basically the author and the inventor of like the, some of the, the modern financial systems with the central bank and other things. So it's like he, through his writing and his original thinking and not following the crowds, he created some amazing financial instruments. So I just think, yeah, so that's my soundtrack, my shot, Alexander Hamilton. Right. So definitely not, definitely not what I was expecting. <laughs> Um, unfortunately, I have not heard that song or Hamilton, so I'm going to have to check it out. But the concept resonates, right? I mean, I, I, I would like to believe that every founder has that moment or moments when, when he or she realizes, you know, it's go time. Uh, I'm, I've got to find a way to make this happen because it's what I'm meant to do and what I need to do. It's kind of funny because it kind of reminds me of like the, I don't know, the 17th or, or 17th or 18th century version of Eminem's Lose Yourself. <laughs> Uh, maybe the, maybe the similar, similarities end with the, the concept, but I think there's something very evocative there in, in terms of the mindset that an entrepreneur would need to take something like that forward. Yeah, it's, and, and the, the song itself is just so much fun. And so, yeah, I definitely recommend people listening to it just for fun. The whole, the whole soundtrack is just amazing. It's an amazing work of art. So, yeah, there you go. So I'll find it and put it in the, the show notes. But I think that's it, Tony. I think, we've, I think we've made it. So thank you so much. I really enjoyed uh, this conversation. I'm really grateful for you to joining me for the very first episode of The Trajectory Africa. Thanks to all of you who are listening, and I hope you'll be back for track two. We'll be discussing the fundamental assumptions underlying African BC and what we can learn from data-driven trends. You can find us everywhere you listen to podcasts, and I hope to see you there.